Dr. Evans. It's so great to be able to talk to you today. It's great to be here. I really appreciate the invitation, Karis. I, um, you know, am going to W an unapologetically Black unicorn in your own right with all the things that you have done in the behavioral health field. Uh, most notably right now, you are the CEO of the American Psychological Association. I knew you when you were the um, director of the Philadelphia Behavioral Health. Yes, it had a long title for uh, the behavioral health system. <laughs> yeah, the behavioral health system in Philadelphia. Um, and, um, you know, I've just been so, so impressed with um, a lot of the work that you've done over the years. And we're kickoff recovery month. Woohoo! Yes, sir. So I thought what a better place to start than to talk with you. So we were talking a little bit about the low percentage of people of color um, who are in both psychiatry and psychology. You know, for, for Black and Brown folks, it may be around four or 5% in psychology. So how did you even get interested in this field and then kind of go through that leadership trajectory? Yeah, sure. You know, so I, I grew up in Florida. My my dad was in the military. And when he retired, you know, back then they had the GI Bill and he went to went back to school. And I, I remember him bringing home a psychology book. I guess I was maybe 12. I, I know I was young. And because I didn't know what psychology was, what I thought it was, was about how to read people's minds. Right. And so I was just fascinated with this idea that, you know, there's this whole thing there where you can kind of learn about people and learn how people think. And, you know, I think that that was probably an early indicator that uh, I probably should be a psychologist and that uh, I had a natural interest in that area in the, in the field. When I went off to, to college, I actually majored in music and uh, figured out pretty quickly that because I like to eat and sleep in a house that probably music wasn't going to be a good major for me. And I should probably get something that I could make a, a living at. And um, and I really recall that early experience, that fascination with psychology. And when I was trying to figure out, OK, so what do I do now? And this was what around 1979, 70, yeah, it was early, late 70s, early 80s. And a teacher of mine encouraged me because at, at the time, you know, I, I was looking at, well, to be a psychologist, you have to be in school forever. And I didn't want to be in school forever. And um, but this one teacher talked with me, encouraged me to, if that's where my passion was, to pursue it. And so when I pursued it at the time, what I was really interested in was um, becoming a therapist, you know, going off, getting my training and then coming back and working in Florida, you know, as a, as a therapist, because at the time that was the only thing that I knew that psychologists did was to do therapy. And um, so I go off and I discover when I, you know, going through my training that psychology is way broader than that. And, mm -hmm. and my fascination with the field just grew because, you know, there were cognitive psychologists. Actually, I, I have a master's in experimental psychology and uh, my thesis was on human cognition. So there are psychologists that study nothing but, you know, how we think and how we make decisions and how we learn. There are psychologists that study social phenomena. There are psychologists that study neurological things. I mean, psychologists do a whole range of things. Anything that has people involved, it has a psychological aspect. And so I just really got interested in psychology at that point. Even with those broad interests, I decided that I was going to focus on clinical, which is what I had originally wanted to do, but always kept a, a broad 
idea about how I could use all of these different areas of our field to do the work that I was called to do, which I, I believe is to serve people who have uh, behavioral health challenges. Wow. So how did you go from, um, um, and by the way, when you said you majored in music and are from Florida, you know, my father is from Florida. Well, my parents, my mother and father are from Florida, but my father went to undergrad Florida A&M and he majored in music and he was in the Florida oh. A&M band. And we all know what that means, right? Fortune 100, absolutely. Yes, there you go. So, <laughs> and my father also was in the um, army. So I'm an army brat and so there you go. Uh, okay, so we got we got a lot of overlap. Okay, yes, a lot of overlap there. So um, when you became a therapist and kind of you know started working with people, I guess on the individual level, how did you move from being a therapist to running a behavioral health department? You know, like, <laughs> All right. like yeah, first I would me personally, kind of... Karis Meyer, would run away from that. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah, you ran into it and 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 ran for it, right? Yeah, I, I did. Well, you know, and this this kind of goes back to sort of that that having that that broad interest because when I was I, I went to University of Maryland and University of Maryland is in the Washington D.C. metro area and I, I had the good fortune as a, when I was going through my doctoral training to internship to do an internship at the American Psychological Association, so I did an internship and worked with psychologists who were doing public policy work and they were going up on Capitol Hill and, you know, writing congressional testimonies for experts. And, you know, again, it was, I was just fascinated. And the thing that hooked me was I was, um, I was probably a second year graduate student and I went to an event. They sent me to an event. This was in the early days of AIDS. There wasn't even a test for the HIV virus. That's how early uh, we were in the, in the, the AIDS crisis back in the eighties. And uh, one of the positions that APA had taken was that that we shouldn't test people. Uh, we were testing for antibodies back then, not the virus. Uh, we shouldn't test people without doing uh, pre-testing counseling because back then, if you got the diagnosis, it was basically a death sentence because there weren't any treatments. And so, from a psychological standpoint, APA was saying don't just test people and then give them that news. You really need to help people understand how to under, understand the news and take the news if it's bad news. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was our position. I went to this big conference and there was a lot of media. I remember, you know, bright lights in the room, the media cameras there, and they had a and a session and I stood up and I, and I said the APA position. Well, a few days later, I see my quote in a Washington newsletter, and I was just blown away because at, at that time, I'm thinking, you know, the only people that have any kind of influence on public policy are people who have, are lobbyists. They're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars. And just that experience of, you know, me, a lowly graduate student, saying something and then it getting published and widely distributed in Washington, it really piqued my interest that, you know, public policy might be a really interesting area because, you know, I could see maybe 40 people in a week if I'm doing individual therapy, but I could affect thousands, tens of thousands of people mm. in the public policy arena and went into government in Connecticut, brought up uh, managed care back in the 90s. And then I became, I was appointed the deputy commissioner in Connecticut. And then Philadelphia, you know, which is a phenomenal system, uh, you know, invited me to come down and run 
the behavioral health system there. And I did that for 13 years. That is just so fascinating because I think a lot of us get into the work initially uh, because we want to help people. That's what I usually hear from Absolutely. psychologists, psychiatrists, you know, peer providers, substance use counselors, et cetera, is that, yeah, I want to help people. And we don't think of policy as an avenue to help gazillions of people versus the one-on-one individual kind of person kind of thing that we do. This is really, you know, so fascinating to hear. But I remember reading the work that you had done with mural arts and and like the connection between mural arts and um, the Department of Behavioral Health. And I thought, wow, that's a really interesting way to get communities, particularly communities of color, engaged in making that community health center of and by and for their community. And so can you tell me, like, how did you even come up with that idea? Like, here we go with that creativity thing. You're super duper creative, like way out of the box. Yeah, yeah, well, thank you. Um, one of the first people that I met uh, was a psychologist named Naeem Akbar, who's a African psychologist. I that, know uh, Dr. Akbar. Yes, Dr. Akbar. I met him through Temple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I mean this with, the, with all due respect. He is a bad boy. He is a he's a bad man. Uh, he's he's just uh, one of, just brilliant person. And one of the one of the things that he said to me that just struck me and really shaped how I became a psychologist was he was he was saying you know um, he was he, he had done a talk and he was talking about his one of his theories and a reporter white reporter came up to him afterwards and said Dr. Akbar where did you get that from. And he, and he said to the reporter, I made it up. I made it up just like Freud made up what he said, <laughs> just like um, you know, Jung and Adler and all of those folks made up what they, they said. So, and, and you know, when he was talking to me, he said, look, you know, get your PhD and then you can write and you, you can develop theories and you can come up with your own concepts just like everyone else. Your PhD is equal to everybody else's PhD. You don't have to reference and tie what you're in doing into what other people are doing. And that, um, that experience just changed the way I thought about myself and how I thought about my role. And so when I've done any role from out of the gate, I do it not based on, you know, sure, I, I, I learn and I try to take what I, I know from other people, but I'm not wedded to that. What I always try to focus on is what is what is it that we're trying to accomplish, and then how do what's the best way to accomplish it? I don't go in it thinking what are the rules, what it, how have other people done it, and how do I then have to do it? I don't come at mm-hmm. I don't come at it, probably any problem that way. I always define the problem, and and then I define what the solution the best the solution is. And one of the biggest problems we have in our field is the issue of stigma and how it gets in the way, particularly in communities of color. In in Philadelphia, the system that I was over, probably 80% of the people in the system were black, brown, Asian people. Uh, And and so if the system was gonna work, we could spend all of the money in the world on uh, services, on treatment and doing all of that that kind of work, but people didn't wanna come because they were embarrassed, because they were ashamed. It really didn't matter. And we know that for communities of color, um, the numbers are dismal in terms of the people who access treatment, who go to treatment. 
And so um, I was looking for different ways to engage a community different, you know, in a, in a new way, uh, in a way that would not be stigmatizing. And I happened to see uh, Jane Golden, who's the, the director of the mural arts program. By the way, Philadelphia has more uh, public mural arts than any place in the world. It's like yes. phenomenal. It's like you cannot turn a corner. Uh, and I saw her. First of all, she's a tremendous person, energy, all of that stuff. And and I was fascinated because she, what she said when she described how they did that work, it was go- by going in, engaging a community, getting the community come up with the the concept, working with an artist. The community came up with the concept. They designed an artist would design what the community came up with, and then the community would come in and paint the mural, and they'd actually adhere it to the wall. Right at the time, I'm thinking, you know, how are we going to ha- go into co- communities in Philly, right? <laughs> if you know Philly, it's like, and go in there talking about we want to talk to you about mental health. It's not going to happen, right? But what we knew was that the mural arts program was really effective at doing that. In fact, they had a waiting list. I mean, every corner that was unpainted in Philadelphia, the community was like, yes, please come to, you know, do that here. And so I went to Jane and I said, look, you know, could we start doing these murals on topics like recovery and resilience and trauma uh, and those kinds of things. And we started a partnership that continues to this day. We started that partnership over a decade ago now there are probably, I don't know, at this point, maybe 30 murals that are on topics of behavioral health. And all of those projects, you have literally hundreds of people that uh, participate in a lot of those projects. And it, it gives us an opportunity to go in communities, have a conversation about these issues that are typically stigmatizing, but to do it in a non-threatening way, yeah. you know, kind of worked out. Yeah, I I was blown away when I heard about this and I'm already very curious, I'm already very creative and it was like, oh, I could take this to a whole new level, right? And so <laughs> and we kept coming up with these really, really creative ideas and every time there was a no, it was like, um, I'm kind of like you, it's like, well, what's the end goal? Like, what are we trying to accomplish? accomplish right. And And even within the confines of any policy or anything like that, we can do these things. They're just not done. Just because they're not done doesn't mean right. they can't be done. Right. So I learned well, that know, from you. I, I, you know, and I, what I have found is that most people, most of the things that constrain us are not um, a rule. They are, is the way we think about issues, right? And, and like, if you've ever seen me do a, a presentation, I always start with black box and I say, look, the mental model that all of us have as, you know, most of us, 99% of us who are trained as psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, doesn't matter, same model, which is black box. We create a treatment. Um, people get sick. Uh, we expect them to show up at our doors. We, they come in, we diagnose them figure out what's wrong, we treat what's wrong, and then we discharge them with the assumption that people are well. So you kind of come through this black box, we, we process them and then send them out the other door. I said, that, you know, first of all, that doesn't work because we know that a lot of people don't come. We know that when people leave, they're not, quote, well or fixed because they have chronic conditions. And, and, I, and I get people to, to critique the, the black box. And what's fascinating to me about this is, I've been telling this, this using this metaphor of black box for probably probably getting close to 20 years now. And, and I've done it around the country and I've done it around the world. And what is fascinating to me is that it doesn't matter. Even with journalists, people are able to critique that mental model really quickly. 
I mean, even journalists, people that don't work in our field, like, well, people don't show up, you know, and they, they'll just go through all of these things that, that are wrong. And, 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 I, and I always end by saying, but the biggest problem is not just all of these assumptions that we make that we know are not true based on our experience, but it constrains our thinking. Because when we think about behavioral health issues, typically, if you ask people, what do we need to do more of in this country? What will 99% of the people you ask say? They will say, we need more funding for treatment. We need more treatment. We need bigger treatment. We need faster treatment. We, but it will always be centered around treatment. And I, I believe that, right? I think that we, we absolutely need more treatment, but we need a whole lot more. We got to work on issues like stigma. We got to work on uh, issues like how do we normalize these issues in the community? How do we put resources outside of that black box into the places where people actually live? I mean, we were doing all kinds of things like we're doing like community screening events in Philadelphia. We go to train stations. Right. Uh, People said nobody will ever come up to a train station in Philadelphia in a public place and talk to you about mental health. Guess what? When you go out, uh, people actually do. In fact, like literally hundreds of people will come up. They'll get information. You can screen, you know, and say, you know, you're having some some issues that are kind of similar to the people who have depression. Maybe you want to go see um, or people come up and they might kind of whisper to you, my, my son is having problems, yes. <laughs> right? You know, yes. so, so, but, but, you know, and, and there's usually always one suicidal person that comes up and it always makes me wonder, what if we weren't there that day? Yes. And, and I always wonder, well, how many other people are out there floating around? They're not going to show up at our black box, but if we go to them, if we embed ourselves in the places that they naturally go, we can reach so many more people. So to your point, it's like, what's the problem? And let's come up with unique solutions to these things that we know are problems. The one thing that I do know is if we do the same thing, we will get the same result. Same result. Thank you. And that's what we're doing. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, I I say that all the time. If we continue to do what we already do, we're going to get what we already get. So adding more beds and we say, oh, we need more beds. Do we really need more beds? I'm not really quite sure what we need because we haven't gone beneath what I call the iceberg. We're always chipping away at the top of the iceberg, the thing we can see and know versus the thing that's underneath that really is causing the problem. When we think about the Titanic, the Titanic Mm -hmm. did saw the iceberg way too late. (laughs) What they saw versus what was happening under the water, what was happening under the water that like, caused the caused the problems with the with the Titanic. When you were talking about that black box, I remember when we had this conversation about especially the stigma around um, schizophrenia and people uh, really having a misunderstanding about the recovery and possibilities, life mm-hmm. possibilities for people living with schizophrenia. Again, if people don't want to call it schizophrenia, I am so fine with that. Whatever, whatever like works for you to call whatever the experience is, people might say extreme states or voice hearing, hearing voices, whatever, whatever it is, it's all, it's all good in my book. Mm-hmm. You get to define it for yourself. But one of the things is we were having a hard time figuring out how to bring into the conversation, looking at more than just the symptoms and looking at a person's life and their flourishing and their um, all of that. So you said, oh, I have somebody for you to talk to who will really sort of blow your mind around 
approaches people aren't using because we always use the symptoms as the target mm-hmm. rather than right. So, um, right. <laughs> so you said <laughs> life is why like people come to us. They don't come to us. Because, well, yes, they yeah. want yes. to have yeah. some relief from their symptoms, but what yeah. people want is a life. And if yes. you work there and you meet people there, you can have all kinds of success that you right, right. can imagine. So, so we called this, uh, you said, yeah, you know, we're not going to, uh, this, this uh, work, they're not looking at the positive symptoms, they're looking at the negative symptoms. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, I'm a positive kind of gal. I don't know what's happening here, but I'm game. And so you were nice enough to introduce me to Dr. Beck and his team around cognitive um what was it? Recovery, Recovery oriented, oriented cognitive therapy. therapy. When I was like, wait, what are they doing? <laughs> and um, it was just one of those things that even though it has a sense of being within the black box, because it's a treatment modality, right? And I'm not a therapist, as everybody knows, I could use the language, I guess, but um, but it, it is a way in which they're um, working with people around their life and their passions and their um, aspirations. And um, how did you even get into that? And you brought that into the black box that was both in the black box and outside because yeah. they work with path housing and all sorts of stuff in Philly. Yeah, you know, when I when I, when I talk about the black box, I, I talk about usually I'm making the point that we have to get outside of the black box. But I also know that we have to work within the black box. That's where a lot of the resources are. We, there are people who need that kind of intensive help. So to me, it, it's a both and. We, we have to do both. Mm. We have to, to look at treatment and build treatment and make treatment strong. And we have to get outside of treatment because I, I love the example that you gave because it really focused, you know, your example of the, the game that you created because it focuses on a major aspect for people's success that often is missing from treatment programs. And you came up with a creative way to address those kind of life needs and life skills and that kind of stuff. So it really is both. I don't see, um, and I, you know, I'm jumping around a little bit because I, I get so excited okay. when you talk about, <laughs> talk about this stuff. But, but I, I remember when I was in Connecticut and uh, Connecticut was the first state to um, make a decision to be a recovery oriented system of care. And Tom Kirk, who was a commissioner who unfortunately passed away last year, um, it was just ahead of its time. And, and when we started doing that work and we started talking about this idea of recovery, particularly for people who have uh, serious mental illnesses, there were a lot of people that were saying, well, people with serious mental illness can't recover, you know, you know, just a life sentence, all this kind of stuff. And we're saying, no, that's not what the research says. That's not what our experience shows us. That a lot of people can get better. But one of the other things that people started saying is that evidence-based practices and recovery don't go together. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We cannot say that. We cannot say that. We are dead on arrival if the recovery movement that we're trying to promote is saying evidence-based practices, using science to, to inform clinical practice is at odds with recovery. And I understand why they were saying that they were saying, well, recovery is about people doing what they want. And, you know, evidence-based practices are too, you know, linear and all that and, um, and I remember us being very intentional about saying, look, if we want people to recover, we need to use the best science that's out there that tells us what is, you know, what helps people the most. And we need to incorporate that into our efforts at long-term recovery. And so when I went to Philadelphia, that was just the perspective that I had, that, that evidence-based practices and recovery go together. In fact, they don't just go together. Um, 
we need to use the science to help drive how we help people to recover, but we need to use that science in a way that's recovery oriented. And uh, so I had the good fortune of meeting Dr. Beck early on in my tenure in Philadelphia, and we agreed uh, that we were going to partner on spreading evidence-based practices. But what I brought to the table was this philosophy and belief that if we're going to help people, we have to do it in a way where we partner with people, where we're, you know, it's not a hierarchical, we're the experts and, you know, you, t- you do what we tell, you do what we tell you, but it's a partnership um, that we're each bringing something to the table, that it is focused on what people are interested in in their own lives. We don't come in and write a treatment plan and put it in front of people and say, sign this, this is what's going to make you better. We ask questions about what do you want out of your life? And then how can we work together to help you get that? And so it was a great example of how I think our field can integrate uh, things on behalf of people. It's taking the science, but it's also doing it from a recovery philosophy. And we got some phenomenal results. People had been stuck on inpatient units literally for like months and months. We were able to get them to a point where they could be discharged uh, into the community. People that people literally had given up on, yeah. we were able to help because we changed the philosophy. We used the science, but we did it in a way that was really honored and respected what uh, people wanted out of their own lives. Yeah, it was probably one of the most powerful things I've, I've heard in quite some time around uh, an approach that can uh, help providers of all types and family members. I thought that was really kind of cool how they can also help family members think differently about how to support their loved ones. And it's not always about, well, Donnie, uh, you take your meds, <laughs> how <are> those voices? That right. <laughs> it's really okay to talk to John, Donnie, Donnie, whatever about, you know, what's going on in their life and how's that going and where could they use some support and, you know, helping too with um, when disappointments happen. I think a lot of times people are so afraid of what will happen to a person, particularly with schizophrenia, when a disappointment or frustration comes up, people are afraid, oh, that's going to make them sick. Even my mom was that way. She'd get mm-hmm. really afraid if I had a, a disappointment and or um, if I was upset about something and I would start crying, she would, oh, no, 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 stop crying, stop crying, because she would worry that that was going to like send me <laughs> down a rabbit hole. Yes. Yeah, right? And it's like, no, mom, I need to cry. That's what humans yeah. do. It will yeah. be okay. Right? <laughs> it will be okay. Like, if I don't cry, yeah. I will go down the rabbit hole. But if I do cry and we work through whatever I'm crying about, I won't go down that rabbit hole. So it was really kind of a a shift, but seeing how they were able to train other providers to think very differently about the people they serve was really, really very powerful. So how do you bring all of this to your role as the CEO of the American Psychological Association, because <laughs> now you have, I want to say now you have yeah. the power, but you know what I'm saying. I know you share your power, yeah, yeah. but um, you know, how do you help, um, you know, this field of psychologists who may be trained in one way to be able to see things as a profession in this recovery oriented co-partner kind of way? I don't know if that's what you're doing, but yeah, I, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, I, um, uh, you know, I believe uh, to whom much is given, much is required. And I, I start out by saying that because to to do any kind of 
systems change work is extremely hard. And you know this because you worked in SAMHSA and you, you've, been, you've been knocking at doors for years. I know that about you, mm-hmm. right? So you know how hard it is to change uh, systems and, and the way people think about issues. And so, I mean, the fir- for me, the first question that I had to ask when I came to APA is like, okay, this is a great opportunity. You know, it's a great platform. And the first question is, do I want to take this on? Right. Do I do I really want to? Because I know what it takes. Right. You know, to, to try to do this stuff. And and it, and it comes down to I don't have a choice. Right. This is, you know, this is where I've been placed. I've been placed here for a reason. And and, and I think it's important to, to take on these kinds of philosophical, conceptual issues that I think can help move our field to to be more effective for people. My philosophy about all of this, as you can see, is by any means necessary, right? Yeah. Uh, use the science, use art, use community uh, events. Um, but I think if, if we're really clear that, and I believe this, that, that if we are serious about social justice, behavioral health issues get in the way of, of equity and justice. Yeah. Uh, disproportionately, who's in jails, disproportionately, who's in the highest levels of care and hospitals disproportionately who doesn't is not employed because they have an untreated mental health issue. You look at those issues, right? All of the, if you're talking about equity and, and for, and social justice, those issues are high on the list in terms of an impediment. And so if we're serious about that, we have to have serious and more robust ways of dealing with those issues. And, I just think we have to use every means that we can to address those so that we have a more equitable society. And this is where I do my two snaps up and why it is that you are an unapologetically black unicorn. <laughs> you have, it is this, we just like snap, snap, clap, clap, the whole nine yards. People know I do that. So I just did it. Um, if there's one thing that you wanted folks to know, and, and let's say, I mean, I have a wealth of uh, different types of listeners, right? But if there's one thing that you would want people to take an action in or to think about, especially uh, for Black and Brown folks who may not think, you know, mental health leadership, I, I would have never thought it. Like, what thing would you say to folks about the possibility and how to prepare for that possibility? Well, I think it's important to see being in leadership as a possibility. I, I was just fortunate that I had early opportunities to move into leadership positions. That'd be one thing. I think the other thing is if you are in a position, like I'm in a position, create pathways for people. The reason that I had a career in administration and, you know, kind of worked in, you know, high level uh, administrative positions is because someone gave me a chance early in my career. And a lot of us are in positions where we can create those opportunities. I mean, the incoming Director of SAMHSA uh, is someone who was in a postdoc that I created, a uh, policy postdoc uh, at Yale 20 something years ago. Wow. Uh, and so that, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, I, 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 I like to think, you know, she, you know, she had that experience of going through uh, this policy postdoc, getting exposed to this, kept, you know, and stayed in the policy arena. And now she's gone to the highest levels of policy in our, in our country, right? So I think all of us are in positions where we can create opportunity, we can create internships, we can mentor people. And, and I, you know, one of the things that I think all of us have to ask ourselves is what can I do? Because we're always thinking about what does the government need to do? What do they need to yeah. do? Ask a different question. What can you do? What can I do? 
And so I'd like to, to start there. And, and I think that the last thing that I would say about this is, I think it is so important for us to be able to take risk and to be, uh, I love the title of your, your, your podcast, Unapologetic. You know, I think we should be unapologetic about our commitment to equity and social justice and those kinds of things. I don't think we have to apologize for that, right? Um, but it also requires us to take risks. The neural arts program that we talked about earlier, when we did that work, it was around 2008. Do you remember what was happening in 2008? Yeah, financial crisis. And as a public official, uh, it was very risky for me to be spending money on what may have been perceived as art. Now, I wasn't doing it because of the art. I was doing it because it was a way of engaging people. But, you know, some reporter could have twisted that and said, oh, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're not funding services, but you're, you know, doing murals. And that kind of, you know, so people could have done that. Right. And, right. And, and, and I was aware of that risk, but I thought that th- this issue around stigma is such a problem for our communities that I was willing to take that risk. Right. And now, now people look at it and they're like, oh yeah, of course that makes a lot of sense. We ought to do that. Right. But at the time when we did it, people are like, this dude, He's from Connecticut. He, you know, he's in there talking about recovery. He's, now he's doing murals. But what's up with him? what's up with this cat? Right? You know, yeah, so I got yeah. here. You know, so I think that all of us can take some risk. Uh, and if we're unapologetic and we're clear about why we're doing it, to me, it's worth the risk. Right, right. Well, thank you for taking those risks. Thank you for uh, mentoring others. I would, I would be remiss if I didn't say. I met you because my mother was very ill. She was in a, in a, in a coma and we were looking for a good neurologist. Um, and that's how I got introduced to you. I don't know how that, but that's how it happened. And that was our, our first, uh, our first meeting, but I saw you as someone who was doing things, not just helping me at an individual level. You didn't know me from Adam, but you were, you were willing to, to, to reach out and help. And then we stayed connected and um, you've taught me so much. So I think I'm the evidence of you mentoring me, whether you thought that's what you were doing, that's what you did. Um, and I can't thank you enough for it. So, uh, and I'm hoping through this podcast, I'm creating opportunities for other people to learn and grow as well. So each one teach one and then each one pass it on. Right. So thank you so much for spending this time with me. This is such a great way to kick off recovery month. So thank you, Dr. Evans. Well, thank you. And, um, I just want to say, I am, I've always been extremely impressed with you from, the time I started talking with you, I was so proud when you went to SAMHSA and you were able to affect public policy and now you're doing, uh, continuing to do that work. So I'm, I'm proud and honored to be asked to be a part of this. So thank you, Karis. Okay. And so thank you so much. And thank you to everyone who listened in and remember more of Unapologetically Black Unicorns next week. So remember to tune in. Thanks so much. <laughs>